Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. So as I mentioned earlier, it is a big day for us, moving from two services to three services. So there's one at 5 o'clock. So if you know somebody who you would really have liked to come to church with you today, but they weren't able to make it, or maybe you just weren't able to get that invitation out to them, just call them after church today and say, hey, uh, turns out my church also meets at night. Why don't you come back with me? I'll buy you dinner. I'm sure Jesus will provide for you the extra money to buy them dinner. So it's a big day. Uh, But we are, you know, just a just a tiny little baby. We're 18 months old tomorrow as a church. So we're just now kind of starting to walk and starting to tear stuff up and climbing up, you know, things and falling down, lots of bruises and scrapes on our legs and stuff, just starting to get into a little bit of trouble. And because we are so young and new, we get a lot of recommendations, you know, just people, and I'm one of them, saying, I think we should do this. And you know, you're saying, I think we should do this. Just a lot of recommendations coming to, you know, a new tiny church. Because it feels like, you know, we don't know what we're doing. And that may or may not be true. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but uh, we get a lot of recommendations. And so I thought through them, some of them yesterday, since today is a big day. And I thought, well, I just will write them down. And I thought I might share them with you, if that's okay. So these are some of the recommendations that I have received on how we should do this or do this better. And you may have something on this list. I have things on this list. People who came and went have a lot of things on this list. Here's some of the recommendations that we've received. Uh, We need a bigger place. We're running out of space here. No, actually, um, I don't ever want a bigger place than this because I want a small church. No, I want a big, massive, huge mega church. That's what I hope we turn into. People have said, you know, the worship is too loud. Uh, Actually, if I sit in the back, I can't hear it, so it would be nice if you could turn it up a little bit more. Um, I love the hymns. The hymns are amazing, so we need to sing more hymns. I actually had a bad experience in my church where they sang hymns, so if we could actually sing less hymns, that would be wonderful for me personally. Um, We sing too many new songs. Actually, I don't want to ever sing that one song ever, ever again. We have worn it out, so let's not sing any old ones. Let's only sing new ones. I like theological sermons. Well, I like sermons that are more practical, ones that I can put into use, you know, like on a Monday. I like it when we look up a lot of scriptures in the sermon. I like it better when we just hunker down into one passage of scripture and never leave that one. The sermons are too long. Sermons are too short. Sermons are just right most of the time. We need more altar calls. But now that I think about it, people are embarrassed to come forward. So let's not ask them to do that. That might embarrass them. I like community groups in my neighborhood. Um, We won't be a real church until we do Sunday school here at this place, even though they won't rent us the space to do that, which is what I say when people say that. Uh, I love student ministry. That is all fun. People, teenagers need to have a place where they can have fun. I actually think the student ministry in the church should be really intense and a lot of Bible study and a lot of discipleship and really hard and, and hardcore. That's really good student ministry. Let's keep it really simple for our children. Let's just tell them the, the basics things. Actually, let's teach them the ancient creeds of the historic church. That's what I want my kindergartner to know I think we need more men's groups. We definitely need more women's groups. Why can't I just study with my spouse? Why are you always trying to separate us? Um, singles, singles won't come to our church unless we have a single ministry, and I'm not lying. Singles won't come to our church if we have a singles ministry. 
We need more global mission trips. Why are we going around the world when we are not even willing to go to our own neighborhood? Why are we always doing stuff for people outside of our church? We should be doing more for people inside of our church. We need a sports ministry. We need a ministry that supports public schools. We need a ministry that supports homeschools. We need a ministry that supports private schools and classical schools. We need to focus on ministering to the homeless. Actually, if you reach the wealthy, the wealthy will influence the city. Therefore, the homeless will be ministered to. So let's reach the wealthy, not the homeless. Let's reach out to Muslims, Hindus, Mormons, atheists, unchurched, dechurched. That's who we should be concentrating on. We need to be careful about the Holy Spirit. We actually need more of the Holy Spirit. We need more speaking in tongues. Actually, we should never speak in tongues. We need to pray for healing. Actually, we should teach people how to suffer. We want a simple church. No, we want a radical church. No, we want a multiplying church. No, we want a church of disciples. No, we want to be a church of evangelists. You ever wonder why the church as a, a group is largely irrelevant to the rest of the world? I mean, not as individuals. I think people appreciate you as an individual and that you go to church and that you provide something for them. But the church is like a collection of people. You ever wonder why just the world doesn't think that much about us? It's not that they don't like us or they wish that we were not meeting. They just don't really care. I think it's because... We don't even know what we're supposed to be. I mean, all of these recommendations that have come to me eventually were good-hearted and good-natured for the most part. But there's no way that we could do all of those things. In fact, most of them are the exact opposite. So really, we can't do all of these things at the same time. It is impossible. And so when we think about church... It just feels very unclear of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be and what God wants us to be and what the city wants us to be and what the world needs us to be. I mean, all of us have recommendations. All of us have opinions. Some of these things are, were very personal to the people who shared them with us. I mean, even if you, uh, you don't come from a church background and maybe this is your first time in a church or in a church in a long time, I mean, even you have an opinion about what we should be doing here. I mean, everybody does. But you mix all of those opinions kind of in the same pot. It's impossible to have any clarity. To know exactly what it is the church of Jesus Christ on this planet should be. So I thought today we would go back to the beginning. Not to the beginning of creation, but to the very first time that Jesus says the word church. Because I'm thinking whatever he says there will give us some clarity in what we should do here. So, Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13. It said when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the son of man is?" So Jesus has taken them way north of their normal kind of pattern and rhythm. They're up north of Israel, and he asked them a simple question, who are people out there saying that I am? And look what they respond, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What they're doing is they're kind of going back into what we call the Old Testament, the story of Israel, and, and people were looking back into the story of Israel and trying to figure out who Jesus is like. 
You know, is Jesus like Elijah from the Old Testament? Well, he's like Elijah, but he's a little bit different. Is he like Jeremiah? Well, he's kind of like Jeremiah, but he's a little bit different. Is he like David? Who's he like? And so they're kind of throwing out all these ideas. Well, some people are saying you're like this, and some people are saying like this, and some people are even saying John the Baptist, who was, just came right before Jesus and actually had lost his life by this point. He was beheaded for uh, telling the truth to someone that didn't want to hear the truth. And so nobody kind of knows who Jesus is. They all got guesses. And then Jesus turns it around and he says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, every single one of us, whether this is your first time in church or you've been here a million times, every person has to answer that question. This is a question that not the pastor is asking or the person who invited you today, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is asking you, who do you say that I am? Because how you answer that question matters. And it's personal to you. It doesn't matter who I say Jesus is, is if you're not saying the same thing that I'm saying. It doesn't matter who the person sitting next to you, your spouse, or your brother, or your sister, or your friend. It doesn't matter who they say Jesus is. What matters is who do you say that Jesus is? It's a personal question that everybody has to answer. And Simon Peter stands up and he answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Meaning you are the, the Savior that was prophesied about to our forefathers. You are the ones the prophets spoke of. You are the Messiah. And you're more than just God's anointed one. You're more than just somebody lifted up to save us. You are God's very own son. Verse 17. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Look back at verse 18. There are three things. Uh, I'm not m- usually a, a point person, so I'm not ever asking you anything uh, to write down, but I thought we would go old school today. And uh, so there are three things I would love for you to remember. Number one, in the beginning, the church was built on faith. In the beginning, the church was built on faith. Look at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Jesus is using a play on words. You've maybe heard this before, but the name Peter is a Greek word that means rock. It's a version of the Greek word that means rock. And then Jesus uses that official Greek word for rock. So it's a play on word. You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my rock. Now, he says the word this. Now, scholars give their whole lives to trying to figure out what Jesus means when he says this rock. Because there's a lot of different theories. What's Jesus talking about? Is he talking about that he's going to build the church on this rock of Peter, the individual? Like everything is going to be built on him and around him? Does he mean uh, that is Jesus talking about himself? Some people read that and they think that Jesus is kind of pointing that we're not getting to see because we're not there. He says that uh, you are Peter and on this rock, Jesus, I'm going to build my church church. Other people think it's just the full collection of Jesus' teaching, that all that Jesus showed us and all that Jesus taught us, that's what the church built, uh, is built on. And then other people, and this is what I believe, believe it, Jesus is talking about Peter, but not just about Peter as the person, but Peter's confession of faith. 
when he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That Jesus says, on that rock, that confession of faith is what we are going to build this whole thing on. I think that's why Jesus is so excited about his response. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And it took faith for Peter to say that about Jesus. It feels like the obvious answer to us. You know, it's like Jesus and Jesus is Messiah. Well, that's what it looks like to us on this side of those events. But you've got to imagine living on the other side of these events. See, Jesus is not the first per- person that in first century Israel that people whispered about that maybe he was the Messiah. A lot of people had popped up and military leaders, charismatic leaders, they had gathered a collection of people. They would meet out in the wilderness and people were like, well, are they the Messiah? Maybe they're the Messiah. So there were a lot of different opportunities for Peter and the people living in this day to have jumped on somebody else's Messiah bandwagon. But what Peter is saying is we have been following you. We have seen the things that you have done. And after experiencing all that, I believe in faith that you are the Messiah. And Jesus says that's the rock that we're going to build the church on. That fits with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when it says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which Peter was one of those. But Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone. He is where the foundation gets its setting. But it was the faith of Peter that the church was built on. And that same thing is true today. The church of Jesus Christ moves forward on the faith of the believers inside the church. You know, we talk about faith all the time here at Bayou City Fellowship. And so I know you may be tempted like, didn't I just hear this message like three weeks ago? Yeah, you probably did because we're always talking about faith. Because faith is one of those topics that you can't talk about too much. Like you can never go too extreme with faith because Hebrews chapter 11 says without faith it's impossible to please God which is terrifying to me because what that means is it means that we can be involved in regular routine religious actions good righteous actions but if it's not connected to faith God is not pleased by it so I'm thinking back through my life right now and all the religious spiritual things that I have done wondering how many of them just floated off into nothingness because they were not connected to any genuine faith inside of me. I remember when I was in college, I was going to a Christian university in Missouri where I grew up, and I was kind of living under this this, uh, passion-slash-guilt burden that I needed to share my faith you know, about Jesus with somebody every single day. That, that was what I was seeing in the scriptures. People are always talking about Jesus, you know, and, and I want to be like that, and I want God to be pleased with me. And so I just felt this, this weird guilt thing on me that I had to tell somebody about Jesus every day or it was just not a good day. But the problem was I went to a Christian university. Now, not everybody on a Christian university is a Christian, but everybody on a Christian university is pretending to be a Christian. So it's hard, you know, to say to them, like, hey, are you a Christian? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, are you really? You know, you can't do that. That's awkward. And so 
Uh, so some nights, you know, I would be in my dorm room and I would go to sleep and I would have not mentioned Jesus to anybody that week. And I would just feel so condemned, you know, so condemned by it. And this is all personal. I don't, I don't, this is not what God was doing. Just all personal religious condemnation. So one night I'm in my dorm room. It's about 10 o'clock. I realize I've not mentioned Jesus to anybody, not even to myself all day long. And I'm like, I don't want to go to sleep with this like cloud of condemnation over me. But I know for sure my roommate is a Christian. Like I've seen him pray to Jesus. And so I think we're good. And, and so I go to the only place in our little college town that I knew people would be up at that time. And it was the Super Walmart because people are always there. And so I'm like, I got to go to the Super Walmart to tell somebody about Jesus because I don't want to go to sleep with a bunch of guilt on my shoulders. And so I go into the Super Walmart and I'm like cruising around, you know, looking for somebody who's shopping to interrupt them in a totally awkward way so that I can, you know, not feel guilty. And I don't find anybody shopping around. So my last hope is the people doing the checkout, you know, the checkout person. And so I have to purchase something because I'm trying to make a very awkward situation not as awkward. And so I literally find the cheapest thing that I can buy because I'm a poor college student. I don't have discretionary funds to pay to tell people about Jesus. So I get the cheapest thing that I can and I put it on the conveyor belt and she starts checking it out. It doesn't take long because it's like two things because I thought one thing would be weird, two things not as weird. And so I say to her, She's about my age, uh, and I say to her, hey, has anyone ever told you Jesus loves me? I'm, like, so cringing, like, even now as I'm telling you this. And she says, uh, yeah, yeah, they have. And I'm like, oh, that's great, because he does. And she goes, you know we go to church together, right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Oh, there's, I, there's your face. I see it now. No, no, I didn't. That's awful, man. There's not, there's not one part of that scenario that God was pleased with other than me being embarrassed. You know, I think that was the only part that he took pleasure in. Why? Because there was no faith there. It was all just religious guilt and condemnation. I was just doing it because it was my duty. It was what I felt like I was supposed to do. But that, even though it's a good thing to do, we should be boldly telling people about Jesus. Even though it was a good thing, it just floated off into nothingness because it wasn't connected to faith. Therefore, it was not pleasing to him. You know, the, the Bible kind of lifts up one character as the person, the example of faith. And it's a guy named Abraham. And Abraham, you've heard his story. We tell it all the time because you really don't understand a lot of the gospels you don't understand jesus unless you kind of start back in the beginning and and a lot of that starts with abraham see god wanted a people on the earth that he could have a relationship so that you and i could look at that people and say that's how god treats humanity that's how god feels about people that's how god loves people that's how god takes care of people that's how god disciplines people that's what god expects out of people so god wants to develop this people he wants to form this nation this people on the earth to to proclaim himself to the whole world and so he starts with abraham and he makes abraham this really amazing promise he said, Abraham, if you will leave everything that you know right now, you live in a, a sophisticated city, uh, you have a lot of resources, if you will leave all that stuff and even a lot of your family and you'll come and follow me and live as a nomad, no longer permanent dwellings for you, but tents for you and your family, if you'll come and do that, then I will make you the father of this nation that I'm building. 
And people are going to remember you forever. And your line will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham does. He just picks up, takes some of his family, and he heads off. No longer a permanent city for him with permanent foundation, permanent dwelling. He's now a nomad. He's living in tents. And he just travels from place to place to place as God leads him around. And this is the person of faith that the Bible lifts up and says this is what it looks like to have faith. It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's the gauge, I think, for us in our faith as a church, as a collection of believers and as individuals. It's not, you know, do you have faith? Well, what am I doing? What spiritual religious action am I doing? I think the better gauge of faith for the church is are you on the move? As a collection of people, are we trying to put down permanent foundations, settle in, organize? Or are we on the move? Are we doing something? Are we on a mission? Has God given us something to run after, to accomplish in this city, on this planet, at this time? Because if we're on the move, then we have faith like Abraham. But being on the move, living in tents, is totally uncomfortable, right? Temporary places are uncomfortable. That's why you never hear anybody when they're young, they move into an apartment and they go, I'm going to live here the rest of my life. (laughs) No, even if it's the best place you've ever lived, you inherently know you don't want to spend forever there. Because temporary places, they're just not ours. They're always borrowed. And we like for things to be ours. But a sign of faith is that you and I resist the urge to put down permanent stakes that cement us into this season of life or this lifestyle that we have provided for ourselves. A person of faith will, like Abraham, pick up stakes, listen for the voice of God and say, in which direction are you going? Are you going to the left? Because if you're going to the left, then we're going to the left. Are you going to the right? Because if you're going to the right, we're going to the right. Are you staying right here? Because if you're staying right here, then we're staying right here. What is it that God has given you to do? We talked about that about a month ago, the first Sunday in January, that this is the year for some kingdom imagination. This is the year for getting things done. And maybe God has put a desire in your heart. And so a month later... Are you on the move? Are you headed somewhere? Are you on your way to accomplishing what it is that God has given you to do? Because I'm guessing for most of us, we got a dream. We got a vision of what our life could be. But then we tried to square it with our permanent foundation. And this permanent life which we have built. And one thing had to go. It was either our foundation or it was the vision. And for most of us, the vision left in the permanent dwelling state. But a person of faith is always on the move. And in the beginning of the church, when Jesus is first mentioning the church, he's building it on the faith of those who follow him. The second thing I'd love for you to write down this morning is in the beginning, the church was opposed. Look what he says in verse 18. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. 
your version of the Bible may use the gates of hell instead of the forces of Hades. It's talking about the same thing. It's talking about what Ephesians chapter 6 refers to as the spiritual forces of evil. If you do have a vision that God has given you, something to accomplish in His name and for His kingdom, you will be opposed. You will. If you have a vision, if you have a mission, you will have opposition. Uh, We uh, just started our community groups uh, for this semester. and If you're not in a community group, you should think about coming. It's the most amazing people, led by the most amazing people that I've ever met. They uh, shepherd so well, these husbands and wives. They pastor us, and, and these community groups are what make this church kind of feel like home instead of just a collection of people. And so every semester before the community group uh, session starts, we gather them together and we feed them and we give them gifts to say thank you because leading a community group is really hard. I mean, imagine kind of being in the lives of 30 people and you're responsible for that shepherding. You know, it's, uh, it can be hard. And so the least I can do is buy them a $15 gift and, you know, $7 meal, you know. So, so we gather them together and, and we just cast a vision for what a community group is and what their role is. This past January, uh, we were meeting together and, and uh, kind of on the whim, not that I was prepared to say it, I just said, I want to say thank you again for volu- you volunteering to lead these groups because you will pay the price for it. And I told them at the, at the tip and the front edge of every great work of God, whether big or small, there's always someone there paying the price. There's always a tip of the arrow who has to be the first one in. And I tell our community groups, you're going you're going to experience unusual opposition because you have invited the church into your home. So this week they started and I started getting word from some of our community group leaders, especially some of our new ones. Hey, you know, we didn't believe you, but uh, turns out a week ago our tiny children started to act like they were insane. And uh, getting notes home from school and we as a husband and wife we're fighting about things we don't even care about and after about the fourth day of that we turn towards each other and say hey Pastor Curtis told us this was going to happen because that's what happens when you take on the mission of the church you get the opposition that comes against the church I've told you before, but when Amanda and I first started kind of wrestling with this church and what it was going to be and if it was going to become, I started getting these weird dreams, these kind of scary dreams. And, uh, you know, I have had scary dreams my whole life. I unfortunately watched a lot of horror movies as a child. And so that's kind of one of the natural repercussions of seeing that as you have scary dreams. But these dreams were, were more unusual. They were always the same different place some different action but the middle was always the same and the end was always the same and so after a very consistent time of that I kind of clued into the fact that this is not just kind of your normal scary dream but this is some real opposition from the enemy and uh, and so some people from our church and, and maybe even you just started praying against that amazing and and by God's grace they went away but probably in the last couple of months I started thinking, I wish they would come back. Because when they were here, I knew I was in the fight. I knew I was in the mix of the kingdom of God because this opposition, it's 
It's not opposition between you and somebody else or even you and Satan or his demons. The opposition is between two kingdoms. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus, and the kingdom of darkness. And sometimes when those kingdoms collide, it spills over into our lives. But when it was happening to me, when the opposition was happening to me in this weird, twisted way, I was kind of glad because I knew that I was doing something with my life that was on the radar screen of the forces that oppose the church. That's the thing about this opposition is you can opt out of it if you want. If you're like, no, I'm interested in Jesus taking me to heaven, Jesus making me a better dad, Jesus making me a better husband, Jesus making me a better worker, Jesus helping me manage my money a little bit better, Jesus helping me be a better friend, that's all I'm interested in, then you don't have to experience any opposition. They will leave you alone until the day that you die. But for those of us who say, no, I've tasted and I have seen, I was a leper. And I was totally disconnected from the grace and the mercy and the life of God. And he healed me. I was dead in my sins, but he made me alive in Christ. And I've got this unquenchable faith inside of me. And so I want to get to work for that person. You are going to experience all kinds of opposition. For the person who carries the banner of Jesus, Satan himself will sit at your doorstep and he will be there when you wake up and he will be there when you go to sleep. He will meet you in the middle of the night if you carry the banner of Jesus. And it's hard and it's weary. And sometimes you turn your head to heaven and go, can I just sleep one time? Can my kids just hold it together one week? Can we just get through this week without fighting as a husband and wife? Can I just get through this moment without incredible uh, darkness overwhelming me? But to the person who has tasted and seen, you would rather have the opposition in your face and know that you were in the battle than for it to disappear and be irrelevant in the collision of the kingdoms. But I love in the scripture, and even here, every time that this opposition is mentioned, it's always referred to as a battle. But always in the word of God, the victory is never in doubt. When the Bible tells you about the opposition that will face us as the church, there's no question about the outcome. Victory is assured. Look, the gates of hell will not overpower. It means that there is no barrier. There is no restraint. There is no gate that the forces of evil can put up that can stop the church of Jesus Christ. There's not one, there's not one time that you will not be able to break through if you pray hard enough, if you believe fiercely enough, if you proclaim the goodness and the greatness of the name of Jesus, you break through every time and the battle may be long and the battle may be weary, but you win always, always. Because the opposition is never in question, but neither is the victory. For the church, the beginning. And then the last thing I would love for you to 
write down is in the beginning, the church had authority. Look at verse 19. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. There's a lot of pressure on that verse because that feels like a blank check that Jesus has just given us, doesn't it? Like, holy cow, I can start tying things up on earth and they'll just be like tied up everywhere. I can start untying things on earth and they'll be untied in the heavenly realms. That sounds like great news. And so people give their whole lives to making sure that you and I, we don't misunderstand that or misuse that. And it's kind of a confusing verse. I want you to turn a few pages to your right to Matthew chapter 18. So Jesus says it to Peter, but he's really speaking to all the disciples there in Matthew chapter 16, but he's definitely speaking to all the disciples here in Matthew chapter 18 because he's going to say it again. He says in verse 18, I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So here you notice, and we didn't read what came before it just for time's sake, but Jesus has been telling them about what to do if somebody in the church just keeps sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and and they don't ever change. And so he's talking kind of about things that we deal with here on earth. And then he says, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And then he follows that up with talking about prayer. So sandwiched, in between, uh, around this binding and loosing is an authority here on earth and an authority in heaven that in the church in the beginning there was an authority to those who were in the church what that means is it means that you have it in you in Christ to be bolder with the name of Jesus than you would be regularly It means that you have an authority about you that when God is prompting you and God is stirring you, you can reach out and you can say, hey, your life seems to be going in this direction, but I think you want it to go in the other direction. In the other direction, there is a way, and his name is Jesus. There's a boldness. There's an authority about you. This week, I was, you know, just like you, I was trying to invite as many people as possible to church this week, and I was working at this coffee shop that I go to in the afternoons. And uh, I'm starting to get to know the kid who works behind the counter. He liked my shoes one time, and so we had an instant bond. And so I'm always talking with them. And and so I was getting ready to leave, and I'm thinking, I should invite him to church. And I'm like, no, you know, because i got to see him again. What if he doesn't want to come? Blah, 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 blah. And I was remembering this. No, I, I'm in the church of Jesus Christ. And I got an authority about my life that other people don't get to have. So I'm gonna march myself over there and invite him to Bayou City Fellowship. And I did. I don't think he's here this morning, but maybe tonight. Things that you would not normally do, you have an authority to do in the name of the church, in the mission of the church. You have authority here on earth and you have an authority in heaven. 
I mean, is that not a unreal thing to imagine? That what you do when you pray, action happens in heaven. Like verbs. We think of heaven as nouns. It's gold. It's a city. People are there. But verbs, action happens in heaven when you pray for the church and for the mission that God has given you. I love that the scripture says that the Holy Spirit interprets for us. What that means is it means when you and I have the faith to follow Jesus, but we don't have the words to say, we don't know the specific direction. It's okay, we can pray whatever it is on our heart because in heaven, when we pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and he's saying, he's praying for the church. He's kind of got the details all mixed up. That's not exactly what we're gonna do, but the faith is there. And the faith gets presented to the son, Jesus, who the scripture says is right now at the right hand of the father, living, living, existing to make intercession for you and me. That means when you pray for the mission that God has put in your heart, Jesus, the son of God, stands next to the father and go, father, you got to answer this one. You got to answer this one. He's praying for the church. That's my church. He's praying for my church, father. He's praying for my mission that I gave him. You gotta answer this one for him because the one he's praying right now is for me, Father. Jesus is doing that for us when we pray for the church. Some of us look around and and God never is answering any of our prayers. If you were gonna do a calculation of the percentage of prayers that you pray that get answered, I'm thinking that most of us, our percentage is very, very low. And it's because most of the time we're praying for ourselves. Our prayers begin and end with me and the authority that Jesus is talking about here. He's not giving away just to make my life better. You can't bind up middle class and loose upper class. You can't bind up an eight to five job and loose early retirement. But you can bind you can lose things in the name of the church of Jesus Christ. So maybe we would get more of our prayers answered if we prayed less for us. What if we started unloosing some of our friends' salvation? What if we started unloosing some light to be sh- to shine in the darkest places in our city? What if we started untying some of the power that we would need to influence our culture? I think God would answer those prayers because in the beginning of the church, there was authority. Turn back two pages to Matthew chapter 16. This is where we'll end this morning. Verse 17. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father Peter's big confession, the foundation of the church, faith of the confession. Peter didn't dream that up. He didn't sit down and meditate and work it all out in his brain. Is Jesus the Messiah here? The 15 reasons why? No, it says Jesus' father revealed that. You know, faith is the foundation for the church fresh revelation is what comes before the foundation. 
some of our faith is just, it's dry. You may have even started the new year with just an incredible amount of passion and already 30 plus days into it, you're just weary and dry, dusty. What you need is not to do more religious things. What you need is fresh revelation from God. You look at your life and it lacks the power that you see in the scripture. What you need is not to learn from somebody else. What you need is fresh revelation from God. For the confession of faith is revelation. That means coming to the scripture this week at home on your own and say, God, I'm not just wanting to read today. I need you to reveal yourself to me. It's what fuels my faith. When you pray, you don't pray. Here is my list of all the things that I need you to do for me. Answer them pretty please. No, you say, God, I'm, I want to get in your presence and I want to be before you. And as I'm praying, I am going to ask you for some things. But what I'm really asking you, above all the little things that I'm asking for, is I'm asking for you to show yourself to me. Fresh revelation is what led to Peter's confession, which led to the opposition, which led to the authority. So in a culture where church can mean anything we want it to mean, let's go back to the beginning. Let's find our revelation. Let's find our faith. Let's find our authority. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I know normally this is the kind the time to kind of check out, but I would love for you just to listen really closely for the next minute. Jesus asked a very specific question to the disciples: Who do you say that I am? Not who does the person sitting next to you say that you are? Who does the person that you grew up around? What does your mom or your dad or your children say? But what do you say? when you talk about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And maybe from an early age, at seven years old, you made Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Maybe you were a teenager, maybe you're a college student, maybe it's been in the last year here at Bayou City Fellowship. But if today... Or at any point in your life, you have come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Would you just raise your hand as a confession before God that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Now, if you weren't able to raise your hand this morning, you're not able to make that confession. There's not anything that you need to do what you need to pray today is God reveal Jesus to me and he will answer your prayer and you follow that revelation to faith in Jesus where you can declare he is the savior God's son Father I pray that you would you would bring us to that confession I pray today that many would for the very first time, confess you as Savior. 
I pray a change would happen in their hearts and that death would be replaced by life in them. God, I pray that you would make us the church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name.